You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Uh, all of that brings us to Exodus 20, uh, verse 13. Uh, <clears throat> I jokingly was saying that on uh, Mother's Day, I preached a sermon called Jesus, the Law, and the Christian. Uh, on Father's Day, I have a special sermon uh, for all of you, uh, including our fathers, uh, called the Sixth Commandment, Do Not Murder. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, I hope you are encouraged uh, by the message today. Um, and, and in fact, in many ways, I... I chuckled at myself. I thought, you know, here in one sermon, we're going to deal with the issues of murder, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, not to mention anger, envy, and resentment. Uh, That's that's all on the docket uh, for our sermon today. So it should be lighthearted. So recline uh, in your seat, uh, take a deep breath. And um, this is my obligatory joke before I jump in uh, to uh, what is the sixth commandment in a culture of death. Uh, as we talk about this command to, uh, that we see in the sixth commandment to not murder, this prohibition against the taking uh, of human life uh, unjustly, um, we have to understand it in light of the culture that we live in. Um, and in some ways, it's easy to look at our culture today and think maybe it's more unique than at other times in history. Uh, but the reality is uh, we uh, have been in a culture of death since Genesis 3. Uh, since Adam and Eve took uh, the fruit uh, in the garden, uh, they spiritually died and brought with it all kinds of death and destruction. Uh, and it's been that way ever since. Uh, and, and, and as I think about our history today, and not only is it Father's Day, but tomorrow is technically the national holiday, but uh, to today is Juneteenth, the day that we celebrate Um, the news of the Emancipation Proclamation reaching those who remained as slaves in Texas in 1865, Uh, the news of freedom, uh, at least on paper, um, that uh, that would initiate the process of becoming uh, a more perfect union as we sought uh, and we uh, we pursued uh, equality uh, across races. And uh, by God's grace, we've come a long way, and uh, in, in many ways, there are various things that we need to do today to make that more a reality. But as we think back about that reality, I just thought, looking up statistically, when you think about the numbers of people who were killed, numbers of African slaves who were killed during the slave trade, the numbers range anywhere from six uh, to somewhere over 70 million African slaves were killed in the uh, in the in the slave trade uh, from the 1500s up into the into the 19th century, um, and the the numbers range the the number that's reported to the UN that they report is over 17 million people not just accidentally lost their life but their lives were ta- they literally were stolen and their lives were taken from them. We've lived in a culture of death for a long time. In the, in the 20th century, over 175 million people died at the hands of four particular men. Those men were Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, and Mao. 175 million. The word genocide was coined in 1944. Uh, that, that word, of course, the idea has existed for a long time, but the word is coined. We had to come up with a word to express the death that we saw and were experiencing in the, in the 20th century. 
And now we come to come to, to where we sit today. This year alone, we've seen death um, in terms of personal and uh, and tragic ways through the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the deadly pullout of the U.S. and Afghanistan. Uh, that's been in the news lately. The number of mass shootings that we face. The number I've uh, seen reported: two hundred and forty-six mass shootings, twenty-seven school shootings, with over twenty people dying in Uvalde, Texas, uh, just recently. Just this week, uh, there was news on Thursday of another shooting in Birmingham, Alabama, and Vestavia Hills, where three people were killed. Death is all around us. In 2020, the statistics regarding suicide is there are 1.2 million suicide attempts and over 45,000 people died by suicide. In 2019, there were nearly 630 abortions reported to the CDC. Since 1973, when Roe v. Wade went into effect, we've seen over 60 million unborn child, unborn children aborted. It's easy for us to hear the Sixth Commandment. I don't know if I mentioned to you. It's, it's very simple. Do not murder. It's very simple to hear that and think to ourselves, I did a poll before we started the Ten Commandments. I asked anybody who had murdered someone to raise their hand. Is there anyone who has changed their answer? No one raised their hand. So in some ways, application, sermon, closed, right? Like, do not murder. It's, it's as easy as that. And yet, there's so much more that we have to unpack because we live in this culture of death where taking human life is far more common than we would think. And the reality is the perpetuators of this culture of death aren't just for people in the past, like I mentioned in the 20th century, but the reality is you may have a neighbor near you who fits this category. And as we dive into God's word, we see before we get too comfortable, the sixth commandment has something to say about not just murder by our hands, but what's taking place in our hearts. So I want us to see the command in in Exodus 20, verse 13, and unpack it. And then from there, I want us to to really understand uh, the the why underneath this command as it relates to the to the the, the imago dei, the image of God uh, that that is upon every human being, uh, and then look at how it applies to our world today, um, and then see how Jesus presses it home uh, as he addresses our heart. So, uh, the command Exodus twenty verse thirteen, God's word says, "Do not murder." It's actually just two words in the Hebrew, uh, pretty straightforward. In fact, all the commands that follow from here uh, are pretty straightforward. Uh, But what it's saying and what it's referring to, the word that's used here for murder is a a rare word uh, that's that's used only a few times. Uh, Ironically, the word for kill, uh, which is different than murder, kill uh, and murder have somewhat different connotations. Murder being the unjust taking of someone's life. Killing uh, can be used in, in sometimes in reference to murder and sometimes in, in other situations. Ironically, in seminary, the word that you use to conjugate Hebrew verbs uh, is, is the word katal, which is the, the Hebrew word for kill. Um, and so as you're working on, if you've ever done grammar, Latin, or some other language, you have to do conjugation, and you say to yourself, like to your professor, you're killing me, you know, like it's literally uh, what's happening as you, uh, as you have to learn uh, Hebrew. And so it felt like a death by a thousand cuts. Um, but <clears throat> uh, that's not what the, the word is here. Uh, it's a, a different word that, um, that often uh, is, is used when it's used to, to reference murder, the unjust taking of someone's life. And the Old Testament distinguishes between premeditated murder 
um, and what we might call um, either voluntary or involuntary manslaughter, when, when perhaps in the heat of a moment you intentionally uh, strike someone intending to kill them, or perhaps because of your recklessness, like today we would apply it to, say, drunk driving. If you get drunk and you kill someone, that would be involuntary manslaughter. That wasn't your intent, but because of your recklessness, you've taken someone's life under the umbrella of murder, The Old Testament speaks to all of these things. You can check out Deuteronomy 19, 1 through 13, that helps unpack the different different motivations that are at play uh, when murder takes place. But the commandment here in Deuteronomy uh, 20, excuse me, Exodus 20, verse 13, forbids the unjust taking of innocent life, whether it be premeditated or not, or whether it be intentional or unintentional. Now, we we won't have time to unpack all of this, but in Scripture, uh, throughout the Old Testament, uh, and and even into the New Testament, it's clear that the the Sixth Commandment is not prohibiting capital punishment. Uh, Previously, we've talked about capital punishment here, and there are arguments by believers, both for uh, the the continuing practice of capital punishment today and uh, and others who would argue against it. What we can't argue is that it's uh, not in the Scriptures. Capital punishment is clearly taught in the Scriptures when you look at places like Genesis 9-6, which speaks of uh, the value of human life, and if life is taken, life is required. Uh, In Exodus 21, 12-35, in the kind of working out of these Ten Commandments, you see very specific instructions about capital punishment in various circumstances. Uh, We also know that this sixth command isn't prohibiting self-defense. It's not speaking of defending oneself. Exodus 22 uh, speaks of the issue of self-defense in the case of a thief coming in and breaking into your house, uh, that uh, in those situations one is not guilty of bloodshed. Nor does it mean that war is necessarily prohibited. Um, I decided today not to give you a treatise on just war theory. Uh, you're welcome for that. But uh, if you would like to look more into it, you can, you can be assured that uh, throughout, the, throughout history, Christians have thought deeply uh, about uh, what constitutes a just war as well as what just engagement in war looks like. Uh, everyone can agree war is never desirable and should be the last, um, uh, last means pursued at all possible. Uh, and, and as we have seen throughout history, uh, war has brought out the absolute worst in humanity. Uh, it was said by Winston Churchill at the end of the First World War uh, that people were so desperate uh, that they were basically willing to do anything uh, besides cannibalism and torture. But had the war gone on much longer, those things perhaps would have been on the table. Uh, before the, uh, the end of the Second World War, there was a, a theology that believed that the world was going to get better, progressively better and better, and usher in the kingdom of God called postmillennialism. Uh, after World War II, people were decidedly against postmillennialism, knowing that humanity was not getting better and better and better. But there was a dark reality in the heart of every human being, and that dark reality came out in its worst way in war. Uh, so even though we see war as a last, um, a last uh, means uh, in terms of conflict between uh, nations, there is uh, principles that guide uh, just engagement in war as well as uh, thinking through what constitutes a just war. 
Um, I'll leave it to your history professors and to uh, conversations over coffee or a campfire, whether or not all of our wars that we've engaged in have been just and how we've engaged in them have been just. Uh, But uh, the the question of war is one that, uh, and the reality of war is one that we see in the pages of Scripture. So all uh, that we see in in the Sixth Commandment is addressing the unjust taking of human life. But as this command is fleshed out in Scripture, it's more than just merely the taking of of life. We see that uh, in Scripture there's also a concern with the preservation and the protection of life. Uh, Scripture isn't just, um, and the Sixth Commandment isn't just, uh, uh, just narrowly interpreted as don't take anyone's life. Therefore, if you've not taken anyone's life, well, congratulations, we're all in the clear, right? Um, in fact, uh, we're, we're going to see by the end as Jesus presses into the sixth commandment uh, that anyone who is feeling justified this morning uh, should take a deep breath and in humility step back because Jesus has something uh, to say to us all. But even in the Old Testament, in the law, consider, consider these passages in, in Exodus 21, 28 through 29. It says, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, if you have uh, an ox that gores, a gory ox, uh, then and you take that ox out like it's no big deal, the owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. We, we see the concern for human life and the responsibility to protect life. In Deuteronomy 22, uh, there's instruction about uh, how one builds a house. And it says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, which is a fence that would go uh, on the border of the roof. And uh, that time, the roof and out, outside would be where you would go, especially in the evening, to cool down. And when you would go on the roof, if you didn't have a parapet or a fence, uh, it would be possible to fall off. If you just imagine uh, if that's where your kids go to play and you send them up on the roof, you would want a fence on your roof. If you have some of your friends that come over, um, you know, I, I've been known in my time to visit people's house and accidentally spill my coffee uh, in the way. Just I only imagine if I was on somebody's roof without, um, without a fence, what might happen? But it says when you build a roof, you should make a fence around uh, the top of your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. The Scriptures teach not only the value of life and uh, teach us to direct us not to take life through murder, but also compels us to value life through protecting and promoting the flourishing of life according to God's design. And this has been the case throughout history as uh, various catechisms have helped us understand what the Sixth Commandment requires. Um, in the New City Catechism, one that uh, we've used with our kids uh, and, and encouraged here at TCC, it says that in regards to what's the sixth commandment require, it requires that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Here we see that there's a negative prohibition not to take life, but also a positive command uh, to pursue uh, peaceful and be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. The Heidelberg Catechism, upon which the New City Catechism uh, is, uh, depends, fleshes it out more fully. It says, in regards to the question of what does the sixth command require, it says, I am not to dishonor, hate, or injure, or kill my neighbor. 
by thoughts, words, and gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. The catechism helps us understand both the negative uh, prohibition as well as the positive command in the scriptures. And and what I want us to do is to, to dig in a little bit deeper to understand why should we keep the sixth commandment? Why is the Sixth Commandment so important to be included here in the Ten Commandments uh, and to be uh, such a reflection of the moral character of God? And the answer to that question is the image of God. You see, on the one hand, it seems like this is the one command that everybody could agree upon, that we shouldn't murder. In fact, throughout, uh, throughout various ancient uh, societies, uh, there has been uh, some general sense of uh, of this prohibition against the taking of life. It doesn't serve society well to indiscriminately take life, right? Uh, we, we know that to, to be the case, or we would presume that to be the case. But we, we shouldn't believe that it's merely a social construct that we've all just agreed upon through trial and error throughout the centuries that, you know what, it's, it's a good idea not to kill each other. Um, that there must be something deeper than that. And we know looking here in the Scriptures that there's a command do not murder. God's Word said it. That settles it, right? It seems that simple. And, and it is true that this is God's command, but, but underneath God's command is the reason God lays down for us and the reason that life is valuable and that we are not to unjustly take life is because we are made, all of us, in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 uh, expresses this when God uh, in, in his act of creation on the sixth day says to himself, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And we see the significance of the image of God in Genesis 9-6 when God said, Whoever sheds human blood by, by humans, his blood will be shed. Why? For God made humans in his image. The, the value of life and the, the consequence of taking life, the, the, the punishment that it brings is based upon this truth of the imago Dei, the image of God, that we are made in the image of God. And this reminds us of how the whole law is built together. Uh, the, the two tables of the law, as Chris kind of spoke a little bit to this uh, uh, last week and, and even when he uh, preached a few weeks ago introducing the Ten Commandments, we have the two tables of the law, the first four commands and the last six commands. The, the first four are vertical in nature, the, la- the, the last six are horizontal in nature. You guys know the, the Ten Commandments, right? We, we did a, uh, an anonymous pop quiz uh, at the beginning of the sermon series, right? You shall have no God beside me, right? Uh, number, number two, you can do it this way. You shall not bow down to any idol, all right? You're getting a free lesson here. It's, it's like you're at my dinner table. Don't bow down to any, any idol. Uh, number three, don't misuse God's name, all right? We don't misuse God's name. Number four, we remember the Sabbath, all right? So just recline back and remember the Sabbath as, as you recline. Uh, and then we move on to, to honor your mother and your father, except if you actually did this to your mother or father, you'd probably uh, face some consequences. I know I would. In fact, my, one of my first uh, in-school suspensions was because I saluted um, a teacher, 
uh, in seventh grade. Um, uh, that I came to know Jesus in ninth grade. Uh, number six, do not murder. Do not murder. Uh, we take the, the knife and we, we do not murder. <clears throat> There's a lot of different ways to do. Uh, do not commit adultery. If you have children, you can do walk down the aisle. You honor marriage. Uh, do not commit adultery. Or uh, you can cover the blanket. And, uh, you do not commit adultery. Uh, number eight, <clears throat> you do not steal. You don't, you don't steal. We don't take what doesn't belong to us. Number nine, we do not bear false witness, right? We do not bear false witness. And number 10, we do not covet. We do not covet. We say mine. I want mine. This, this is the, the moral law of God reflected in the Ten Commandments, worked out and fleshed out in the rest of the law in Exodus through Deuteronomy. And Jesus, uh, this is why everyone loves Jesus. Jesus takes all of this and he says, let me sum it up for you like this. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. It's the first table of the law. It's the, it's the do not have any God beside me. Do not worship idols. Do not misuse God's name. Remember the Sabbath. The Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Jesus is showing how the two tables of the law are intertwined. That love for others flows out of love for God. And that love for God compels us to love others. So if we say we love others, but we dismiss or deny love for God, then that love is shallow. If we say we love God, but it doesn't issue forth in love for others, then that love is bankrupt. And as it relates to the sixth commandment, our responsibility to our neighbor, to love our neighbor by not unjustly taking their life and by seeing the value of every person's life, the reason that we do that is grounded in every person's relationship to God. Not a saving relationship to God, but based upon God's creative work and Him as our Creator God, He has made us in His image. Think about this. The one true and living God, the one who will not entertain false worship or the dishonoring of His name, has imprinted His name upon His creation. And the only people, the only creatures in His creation who bear His image are human beings. And He's put His image on us. And because we are made in the image of God, we have responsibility to one another to love our neighbor. And at the core of loving our neighbor is to not take their life and to value their life. And so to use the words of the catechism, to dishonor, to hate, to injure or to murder our neighbor is to dishonor and sin against our Creator God. Because here's the thing, just as you are made in the image of God, God has made every other human being. No matter how annoying they are, no matter how much you don't like them, no matter how different they are, He's made us all in His image. God alone is the Creator and the author of life. He gives life, He takes life. And the sixth commandment reminds us emphatically that we are not God. We do not give life. We do not take life. We are not the creator. We are not the author of life. God is. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, human life is thus the most precious and sacred thing in the world. And to end it or direct its ending is God's prerogative alone. 
We honor God by respecting His image in each other, which means consistently preserving life and furthering each other's welfare in all possible ways. This is the sixth commandment, that we do not murder, and it's grounded in the image of God. Now, we all know that murder is wrong, but what application does this have to contemporary life? I want to mention three things. And these three things are are perhaps three of the most sensitive and uh, grief-filled realities of life. They they relate to to death, the taking of one's own life and suicide, the ending of one's life prematurely through euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, and the taking of unborn life and abortion. The Sixth Commandment prohibits suicide, the taking of one's own life. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. Whether you've had suicidal thoughts or you've been affected by suicide in your life and in your family, I want you to know that God sees you. He loves you. He cares. Even if you think your life is worthless, He thinks your life is immeasurably valuable. Even if you face the grief of losing someone through suicide, He knows you. He bears you up under his arms that's the hope that we have in God throughout the scriptures though we see five instances uh, of suicide and judges chapter 9 first Samuel 31 second Samuel 17 first Kings 16 and then Matthew 27 verses 3 through 5 in all of them the context of suicide is often is is shame and defeat in some capacity And there are instances when God's people even ask God to take their lives, such as Job and uh, and even Jonah. And in each of those cases, God never agrees and views their requests unfavorably because God values life and he alone is the author of life. Job says he gives and he takes away and he emphatically tells Job it's not your role to do so. And, and the reason I press this home here, sometimes when we think of the sixth commandment, when we think about suicide, we don't think at all about sin because obviously there is a reality of sometimes it being disconnected from one's own thinking and ability. And yet I, I want to, to be clear because the scripture speaks to this, that the taking of one's life is not the prerogative that we have been given. And, and to, to speak to this, I love this quote by <clears throat> Kevin DeYoung. He said, suicide may feel like the only way out, but Scripture tells you God will never lead you into a situation where violating His command is the only option. In fact, <clears throat> God says your life <clears throat> is precious to God even when you have concluded that it's pointless. And I believe that perhaps one of the means that God might use to encourage struggling Christians or anyone struggling with the thought of taking one's life is to know that when you feel alone and rejected and abandoned and no one cares and it would just be easier to do it this way, there is somebody who knows. There is somebody who cares. His name is God. Nobody else might be able to see into the full extent of your hurt, but He does. Nobody else might know the full uh, struggle of the thoughts that you might have, but He does. And perhaps one of the things that might jolt or awaken us to remind us of that reality is to remember that God alone has the prerogative to take life. And if we seek to take our own life, we're grabbing the reins that belong to God and saying, mine. Mm -hmm. 
The sixth commandment prohibits suicide, the taking of one's own life. And it does so graciously to remind us of the value of our own lives. And the sixth commandment also prohibits euthanasia, or uh, though technically different, often seen together as physician-assisted suicide, the intentional taking of life early to prevent suffering. And in many ways, our culture's moral confusion is on display when we think about this subject because we tell struggling teenagers that their life is immeasurably value and if they are struggling, they should reach out uh, to get help. But then we tell aging adults that if they feel the pain and the struggle of sickness or just even aging, that life isn't worth living and that they should end it. They should take it into their own hands to end their life. In the Netherlands, you can request your life be ended simply because you're tired of living in your old age. In 2014, Belgium, amongst a few select other countries, extended the rights to euthanasia even to minors who were suffering various terminal illnesses. In places like California and Canada, there are now laws permitting some form of physicians-assisted suicide. Now, Understand, uh, the scriptures help us make distinction. There's a a clear moral distinction uh, between the difference of allowing someone to die when they cannot sustain their life on their own. I don't know if you've faced that circumstance or situation. I've experienced that with my biological mother being supported and sustained by uh, life support after having a stroke and knowing that if that wasn't if that machine wasn't running her life would not be able to continue on its own and having to make the decision that it was time to remove that support there's a difference between that and directly taking one's life early because we don't want to face the suffering that's coming the scriptures speak clearly, clearly, clearly to this. <clears throat> and, and as one ethicist said, at some point, omission of care is not a fault, but a courtesy to the patient. But euthanasia, by contrast, ask a physician to prescribe chemicals for the purpose of directly killing the patient. And here's, here's what I know. The end of life, and I've faced and experienced and come up close enough with death, and perhaps some of you have, the end of life is filled with some of the most difficult decisions. It's filled with some of the deepest grief, some of the greatest confusion and hurt uh, regarding the circumstances that surround it. But before you're in that fog, let this conviction be settled in your heart that God is the author of life. Suffering does not negate the value of life. A hard life, a hard death does not negate the value of life. The high cost of treatment does not negate the value of life. And I assure you that we can remember a society that gives patients the ability ability to willingly choose how to take their own lives is never far from someone else making that decision for you. In fact, it's been said that during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, the the Dutch physicians of the time refused to obey the orders by the Nazi troops to let the elderly and the terminally ill die. They, They refused, in essence, to euthanize those who were terminally ill and who were elderly. But in 2001, when the Netherlands became the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide, Malcolm Muggeridge, an author, said it took only one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. It took only one generation 
to transform a war crime, the defiance of those Dutch doctors to let the elderly and the, and the sick die to it becoming an act of compassion. The Sixth Commandment prohibits euthanasia and physicians-assisted suicide while giving us the wisdom and the courage to make the difficult decisions that face us at the end of life and to walk through the grief that accompanies the end of life. And finally, the Sixth Commandment prohibits abortion, the taking of unborn life. The Bible is clear on this, that God values the life of the unborn. I saw this week that even our It's no surprise, obviously, politically, this topic is charged in light of the decision in the Dobbs case in Mississippi, which most likely, we pray, uh, will overturn Roe v. Wade, but that then will turn the issue of abortion back to the states. Uh, Our own state uh, has uh, demonstrated and communicated their desire to codify abortion into our own state's um, constitution. Uh, Our own leaders in our country uh, have even argued that there's no... um, There's no contradiction between supporting and having abortions and the Christian faith. God begs to differ. I want to be clear on this issue as well that if you have experienced an abortion, if you've been on the uh, side of encouraging, uh, paying for, supporting someone who's had an abortion... God's word is clear that it is sin. But I want you to know that God's word is clear that there is grace that is deeper than any sin. I don't care where you find yourself and how far it's taken you. Come to him. Exodus 21, 22 through 25, lest you just think this is my opinion. Exodus 21 through 22 uh, through 25 says, When men strive together and one hits a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hits her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. The lex talionis, the, 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 the idea of an eye for an eye, just punishment for, uh, for the, the, the crimes that have been committed, actually is given in the context of an unborn child being killed due to this struggle. The Didache, which is a document um, in the early 2nd century, which uh, kind of instructed the church and leaders in the church uh, about various topics, it, it states this, Do not, in its translation, do not abort a fetus or kill a child that is born. It was even practiced in this time that if a child was born and not wanted in Roman society, they would be exposed. You would take your children, not unlike what happened to Moses in in Egypt. You would take your child and you would just expose them to the elements. Born children, they would just be left to die. Other translations say, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Both inducing abortions and practicing infanticide were common in the context of the early church. And the early church was unambiguous on the value of life of unborn children. And this continues throughout history. This is John Calvin in in the 1500s. For the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And we don't know that from theology. We know that from genetic uh, science. 
It's already a human being. It's almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. Psalm 139 says, For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And your book was written, every one of them, the days that, that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. See, when I read God's Word, I read Psalm 139, I have to think to myself, that's true whether a child is wanted or not. The determining factor of the value of life cannot be a mother's choice or a family's choice. I have to think it's true regardless of what trimester it's in. I have to think it's true regardless of what abnormality or what defect that child might be born with. I have to think Psalm 139 is true regardless of the circumstances in which that child was conceived or into which they will be born. Yes. When I was in my late 20s, um, maybe mid-20s, I was riding with my dad uh, on one trip home. He shared with me that when <clears throat> my mom was pregnant, he and my mom weren't married, my dad was 32 my mom was 25 he pressured my mom encouraged my mom to get an abortion and my mom fit the bill she was uh, I don't know her particular income at the time but I imagine not making very much she already had one child from a different father whom she wasn't with the reason my dad wasn't around is because of suspected infidelity in their relationship so my dad didn't live with me but my mom Wouldn't hear any of it. She was determined that she was going to have me as her son. And sure enough, I was born into the same conditions. My mom lived in with my sister at the time, and I lived with my mom for three years. I've shared some of this with you, but uh, I'll make it short. And after three years, I went into foster care. I was in foster care a year, and I had three different homes when I was in foster care. I think they were all pretty decent. My sister tells me that one of them wasn't very nice to her. I wasn't old enough to remember much of it. And then my dad, uh, somewhere between my uncle confronting him and some others saying, you need to take responsibility, decided that he would take responsibility. And so for most of my life, I was raised by a single dad. He got married when I was young and divorced by the time I was eight and then married again when I was in junior high and divorced by the time I was a senior in high school. And then during that time, uh, I kind of unofficially was adopted and officially adopted by my Uh, best friend's family, uh, whom I call mom and dad today. I shared that with somebody recently, um, and there was a Planned Parenthood protest after uh, the Dobbs uh, court case was leaked, and I was on campus studying, and I walked around uh, at the protest and just kind of watched what was taking place and uh, shared that with someone, and they said, well, that's great for you, but that's not everybody's circumstance. And the person said to me, I wouldn't be for abortion if I could know that every child would be fostered or adopted. And and I I thought to myself, I I agree, and I pray uh, and burden for the church to respond. And and by God's grace, we have responded to the challenge of fostering and adoption, but there's still more to be done. 
But I thought to myself, we simply cannot determine the value of a life based upon the means and circumstances of a child's parent or the world into which they're born. We simply can't. God's word won't allow us. The sixth commandment prohibits abortion. And I'll finally say this. In supporting the sanctity of life of the unborn, at the same time, we must not tire of caring for mothers who face unplanned pregnancies and supporting fathers who desire uh, to, to care for their children. We must care for women through their pregnancy and after their child is born. We can't be quiet about the need for adoption, the need to foster. The Sixth Commandment compels us to take a holistically pro-life stance. I don't mean it as a cliche because it's become somewhat of a common statement that we, we must value life from the womb to the tomb, from conception to natural death. And here's the thing. That's just as countercultural today as it was when Psalm 39 was written, as it was when the law was given at Mount Sinai, as it was... Uh, in the 2nd century when the Didache was written, as it was in the 15th century when John Calvin wrote. So believer, understand, we're, we're not facing unusual times. The value of life has always been questioned where God has not been honored. The value of life has always been diminished when we have not seen and treasured the image of God in every human being. The 6th commandment prohibits abortion. All of those things are weighty. All of those things show us the value of life in contemporary society. But I don't want to miss the moment to bring it home to each of us. And that's what takes us to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 21. I want us to see the heart of murder. You might be thinking to yourself, so far I'm in the clear. Well, that ends now. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and therefore remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in the front of the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. And do it quickly, he says, with your adversary while you're on the way uh, with him to court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. See, Jesus shows us that we can't just understand the sixth commandment narrowly in the sense of not murdering the external act of murder. But we must also understand the internal root of murder, which is anger, which is hatred which is contempt. One uh, theologian, uh, the old, talked about envy as being icy anger and as violence being boiling anger. The, the contempt and the resentment that bubbles up in our hearts towards others when we feel they've done us wrong or have truly done us wrong. God's Word says that murder begins in the heart. Remember the, the way the catechism said that we're not to dishonor, hate, or injure. Before it gets to kill, we're not to hate, dishonor, or injure our neighbor in thoughts, words, or gestures, much less deeds. 
Before we ever act with our hand, what have we done? What have we, what have we thought in our minds? What have we felt in our hearts? What have we said in our words? At its core, anger is the way we react when something isn't the way we think it's supposed to be. And it's because of that that anger is sometimes righteous. Sometimes there are things that aren't the way they're supposed to be that we should be angry about. Uh, but I love how one commentator said it. Our problem is that we burn with anger. We don't burn with anger at sin and injustice. Our problem is that we burn with ind- indignation and anger at offenses to ourselves, at our own uh, preferences, at our own opinions. And here Jesus is particularly speaking to the interpersonal anger that happens in relationships. He's talking about unrighteous anger and personal relationships. He applies it specifically to brothers and sisters, but it's applicable as well to all of us. And so um, I ask you, do you have an anger problem? Would you identify as struggling with anger? Let me help you if you're unsure. Are you irritable? I've been this this week. You get set off easily, cranky, grouchy, testy. Do you like to argue? If you are, you might be seen as disagreeable. You might find yourself fighting over small things or big things, important things, insignificant things. It doesn't matter just as long as you have a fight and you can win. Are you bitter? Does your anger simmer and seethe over a long period of time? Do you recycle old hurts and nurse grievances and bear judgment against others? Are you violent? Throw things, hit walls, grind your teeth. Perhaps you even turned your anger physically towards others. Are you passively angry? This is, you're like, no, I'm good on all these things. Are you passively angry? You don't let it out, but it's always under the surface. Sometimes it shows itself in our pessimism. Sometimes it's in our self-loathing. But all of it stems often from a passive anger towards outside circumstances or even others. David Pallison, who's now passed, has a book called Good and Angry. And in the second chapter, it's titled, Do You Have an Anger Problem? And the, the, the chapter has one word. Yes. Then on to chapter three. <laughs> See, our problem with anger, Pallison said, is that it flares up too quickly, alienates too many relationships, burns too long, causes too much pain, hides too well, and feels too good. We all have an anger problem. And our anger problem is the heart of murder. And Jesus tells us that the solution to our anger problem, and as it relates to our relationships with others, is to seek reconciliation intentionally and with urgency. Reconcile with others, but underneath our horizontal reconciliation is a vertical reconciliation with God that comes through Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. All of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to Himself. And then in turn, He's given us a ministry of reconciliation. That Christ, God was re- in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
The message that Christians bear in a culture of death, in a world filled with anger, hatred, and contentment, is that there is reconciliation possible between one another because there was reconciliation provided in Christ. John Stott said, Sin caused a separation between us and God. The cross has brought us back together. Sin made us enemies. The cross has brought us peace. Sin created a gulf between us and God. The cross has bridged it. Sin broke the relationship. The cross has restored it. There is reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration that's possible through the cross. So friends, as we think about our own anger as we think about the heart of murder that resides in each of us and we think about the world that is filled with the broken pieces of violence and of murder in which we live, we have a message of reconciliation. That message must first be received through trusting Christ. And then we go and we bear that message that is reconciliation. And the truth is, you may say to yourself, I haven't murdered anyone, but I'm guilty of murder in my heart. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. I want to put this before us as a passage that I want to encourage us to memorize over the next few weeks. We'll come back to it because it's applicable to each of the, the commands that we're about to cover. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the bad news of sin. God's Word says, don't get it, get it straight, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Listen, the beauty of the Gospel is it allows us to be honest about our sin. I don't know what sin you have. Maybe, maybe the commandment for you today isn't murder. Maybe it's somewhere along down the line. But no matter what it is, the promise is that though such were some of you, God's Word says you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Though that may be true or was true of us, there is reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration through Christ. No matter how much your anger may have gotten a hold of your heart this week, there's forgiveness. And not only forgiveness, there's transformation where God is continually working on our hearts to replace uh, a seething anger with peace, with grace, with mercy. Be reconciled to God today through Christ. Christians, remember the ministry of reconciliation you've been given. Apply it first to your own heart, but don't keep it to yourself. Let's pray.